I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast, a monthly roundtable podcast where the brothers behind Three Brothers Film discuss the chosen movie in detail, as well as broader topics in film culture. If you've enjoyed past episodes, please consider giving the podcast a five-star rating. Ratings really help new listeners find us. Let your friends know about us. We really appreciate you listening to the show and spreading the word. As you know, the three brothers are interested in having real, substantive conversations about movies. We want more people to join in the chat. I'm Anton Bergstrom, and I'm joined by my brothers... Anders. And Aaron. My last name is the same as my brother's. And this month, we're diving deep into Zack Snyder's Justice League, which was released to the world on HBO Max last Thursday, March 18th. Okay, Ramblers, let's get rambling. I had a dream. Almost like a premonition. I think there's an attack coming. My lord, this world will fall. Warriors. I'm building an alliance to defend ourselves. How do you know your team's strong enough? If you can't bring down the charging bull and don't wave the red cape at it. Amid a blockbuster film culture dominated by the superhero genre, Snyder's four-hour epic restoration arrives, sending reverberations through screens around the globe in a manner similar to the powerful echoes of Superman's death cries that circle outward around the world in the opening scene of Justice League. Does the film resurrect Snyder's status as a blockbuster master? Does it activate aesthetic interest or merely cater to entertainment cravings? Does it signal the extinction of emotionally and artistically complex human cinema? declaring the dominion of franchises from now until kingdom come? Or is Snyder bringing something of value and substance to a flattened world of moving image content? With most theaters still closed here in North America, yet an endless array of algorithmically curated film and TV content at our fingertips, this is the rare movie that arrives as an event in our pandemic film world. Today we're going to begin exploring and evaluating the formal and thematic achievements of the Snyder Cut, and address the impact of the film. But first, a few thoughts about the long and now infamous saga of bringing Snyder's vision to the screen. For those who didn't read the Variety feature on Snyder, or notice the groundswell of fan support over the past few years, let's get you up to speed. This current four-hour, two-minute release is the culmination of a years-long grassroots effort to restore Zack Snyder's original vision for Justice League. Long story short, After the critical and commercial disappointment of Batman vs. Superman, the Warner Brothers executives grew wary of Snyder's dour take on superhero material, gave him a short lease when making Justice League. Then, midway through production, Snyder's daughter, Autumn, tragically committed suicide. Snyder, his wife, and producer, Deborah, left the project to mourn with their family. Warner Brothers brought in Joss Whedon to take over and assert their vision for the DC Expanded Universe. A lighter tone with more jokes less dour action, and a shorter running time. Whedon carried out the mandates and reshot much of the film, resulting in the two-hour-long Frankenstein version that appeared in theaters in 2017. While critics liked it more than Batman vs. Superman, they didn't love it, and the film failed at the box office. The die-hard Snyder fans started to agitate for a director's cut of the film on Twitter, 
and the release the Snyder Cut hashtag was born. Eventually, Snyder himself started to fan the flames, and stars of the movie joined him in encouraging Warner Brothers to let him recreate the film he wanted to make prior to leaving mid-production. Finally, last year, the pipe dream became a reality, and Warner Brothers hired Snyder to shoot new material and reassemble his original vision for Justice League as an exclusive release for their new streaming service, HBO Max. As we talked about in the Three Brothers Top 100 bonus episode, we really believe that our emotional and aesthetic initial reactions to a film are the starting point for a deeper understanding. So, to start things off, I want your basic assessment, guys. Is the Snyder Cup better than Whedon's release? Anders, do you want to start us off? I don't think there's any question that it's significantly better than uh, Whedon's cut that I saw over three years ago now. But I also go and say this. I was struck by your comment that which reflects my memory of the critical appraisal at the time, that many critics preferred the Whedon version of Justice League mm. to Batman vs. Superman. I, as you know, I liked Batman vs. Superman a lot over multiple viewings, especially once the ultimate uh, edition, that essentially Snyder's director's cut of the film that fleshes out some of the plot elements was released. I, I've grown to really love that movie, Batman vs. Superman, but I hated Justice League. I mean, I didn't think it was like like the worst movie ever made, but it was definitely a thumbs down from me, and I found it to be a pretty dispiriting experience to watch it. So for me, the, the Zack Snyder's Justice League, as it's titled on uh, mm-hmm. HBO Crave, is uh, massively better than the, the Justice League that debuted in theaters a few years ago. Aaron, were you also a thumbs no. down? No. So in, in 2017, when right after we had transitioned the site to Squarespace and we were kind of in the midst of an optimistic optimistic boom on on my kind of film criticism side I famously gave a bunch of very lukewarm you know passes to movies such as Justice League and three billboards outside Ebbing Missouri and a few other films um unfortunately just feeling so good about movies I don't know I guess I think I was just optimistic and here's the thing I I think that the 2017 Justice League was like it was fine I I didn't love it. I definitely didn't hate it. In the theater, we had a really bizarre viewing experience. Anton, I remember where we went opening yeah. night, and the yeah. D, the like the DCP broke down, and they tried to restart it, and then it replayed like a third of the movie, and then broke again. And so we ended up not actually seeing the ending until later when we went back to see it. Well, wait, well, wait, I wait, went wait. back. So, uh, yeah. So I was handed. Uh, I was handed a pass to come back and see the film. I never did. So I've still only seen like three quarters of Joss Whedon's version. But yeah, and we also rewatched, like they played the whole movie, it stopped working, and then they had to go back and for whatever reason and replay like 20 minutes leading up to that same moment when it still didn't work. (laughs) And like, so I have a very strange version of that, you know, uh, that movie in in my mind, but... My, you know, my impression of it was like, I actually wasn't like hating it when I was watching it. I was enjoying it fine, but it didn't make a lot of sense to me. It seemed very fast. And, you know, just my own viewing experience really added to a sort of what left an impression of sort of uh, hard to comprehend, you know, a lot of quips, a lot of jokes, but not really something else going on. Yeah. And I, I think noting that the exceptional viewing experience colored our, our view of it so when even when i went back to it i still was thinking about that strange night trying to see it 
And yeah. I feel like I didn't want to give it a be- unfair shake for, like, the viewing conditions. But mm. even in my, you know, soft positive review that's on Three Brothers Film, I noted the fact that the film is... In, it's impossible to ignore the fact that it's just cut up and that there's big chunks taken out and that it's the vision of multiple people clashing with each other. And I kind of had this comment of being like, you know, I would be curious to watch a movie where Whedon and Snyder worked hand in hand and created some kind of, you know, it might be compromised tone, but like if if you had both them on it and you had that kind of Snyder's visual take for things and you had Whedon's, um, you know, kind of like witty banter and kind of lighter touch and some of that stuff, I was curious to see that kind of film. To be fair, in retrospect now, I'm starting to realize how much Snyder's take on heroes and Whedon's take on heroes don't really overlap. And so the, whether you like him or hate him, um, Whedon, kind of like Aaron Sorkin, is built around witty dialogue. And his defining attribute, I think, in movies, and it's become one of the defining things of the Marvel movies, is an ironic distance within the material. And so it's like yeah. he knows that because he's working in genre fair and genre fair can be quite goofy, he tries to counteract any negative take from an audience member by front-loading that into the dialogue. And he'll, like, you know, have Chris Pratt or one of the Buffy characters or whoever reference just how goofy it is, the stuff that's on screen. Yeah, so in Avengers 1, you get the the Iron Man reference to, you know, Shakespeare in the park when he meets Thor. Uh... Shakespeare in the park. Doth mother know you weareth her drapes? This is beyond you, metal man. To sort of undercut, you know, the inherent silliness of Thor as a character. I think that what you mentioned, Anton, you called that 2017 Justice League a Frankenstein version. And I guess that's why I'm not terribly interested in seeing a film that meshes Whedon's, uh, you know, dialogue and scripting with Snyder's visual style because I think there would be some sort of aesthetic clash that just doesn't really work. Well, I recognize that now, but that was my thoughts at the time. Yeah. And I would also say, like, to be fair, um, when I had sort of heard, you know, I didn't know all the details, but when I sort of heard that, you know, Snyder had to step away for, like, personal family reasons, Whedon was taking over. I mean, we have to frame this that at the time, in 2017, Whedon had two Avengers under his belt. He was famous for being the guy who brought together an like an, an ensemble superhero film and made it work. Because going into the original Avengers, right, there was a lot of doubt that you could even do a movie like that. That you could have all those heroes in one movie that would work, they'd interact together, that would make any sense. And he did those, you know... I like those movies. I don't love them. Um, but, you know, like, so at the time in 2017, I had a little bit more, um, I wouldn't say necessarily optimism. Like, I was disappointed when I found Snyder was leaving. But um, I was at least like, oh, like, you know, like, well, Whedon did the two Avengers movies. At least it's in, like, decent hands to finish it. But now you get the full story about what, you know, went on. And it's not just that. It's that I think uh, we have to recognize that Whedon's Avengers had those four films right leading up to it right that laid the groundwork at least for those core three characters yeah obviously incredible hulk not so much people like to forget about that being part of the mcu but yeah but um whereas justice league never really had that because other than batman and superman uh i guess at that point wonder woman had come out that same summer 
they had developed those characters to some degree, but all the new characters, I think they played a little different role than, say, even like Hawkeye and uh, Black Widow. You know, Black Widow in Avengers. So Whedon was like scrambling to essentially do what he did in Avengers without the same groundwork. Because even his Bat, uh, Snyder's Batman and Man of Steel are not the same kind of like character establishing films. But anyway. Well, Man of Steel more so, but Batman versus Superman is not like a um, what we would call like a conventional superhero introduction, right? Like that's the first of the uh, Ben Affleck's Batman, and so they're like trying to introduce this new version of Batman at the same time that they're having you know these major aspects of the Superman story going on, and then he's also throwing in the other characters, right? Like the that's the you know the introduction to Wonder Woman, um, glimmers of Cyborg flash so there's a lot going on already in that movie um and what i found so disorientating about the whedon version was that it was so fast and like i know they they were like trying to avoid what people felt was a bloat to batman versus superman although we find out when we watch the extended version that it was actually like a little too bare bones and when it's fleshed out it's a lot stronger but it's a strange film to deal with and then to cut down you're like now we're introducing all the characters we're meeting aquaman etc but we're going down to two hours. And for me, that's the, the biggest difference between these films, or at least one of the most important differences for me was just that, like, I think that the Snyder Cut is tells a, a good story. Clearly, even elegantly at times, the way it lays out um, our introduction to the Atlanteans and then the Amazons and then... You know, like there's this whole world building, there's this expansive view, and it brings it all together, and the the running time allows it to do that. Um, any other impressions about you know the differences between the two that you take away? So, I, one of the comments, which um, yeah, you referenced the the Shakespeare in the Park joke, and in the 2017 version, there are some jokes in there which are just they're just not here. The scenes are actually very similar, but the jokes are out, and so there's this whole. Um, scene right early on when Batman goes to try and recruit Arthur Curry, Aquaman. And Aquaman's like, the man who stands alone stands stronger. And in the 2017 version, Batman's like, wait, that's not the saying. That's that's not a saying at all. Strong man is strong as alone. You ever heard that? That's not a saying. That's the opposite of what the saying is. And in this version, Batman just stares. There's no yeah. line. <laughs> and then Aquaman walks out. <laughs> You're right that like the, the tone in that scene... Um, the difference between, you know, the same basic storytelling that's going on here, like what, you know, the important information that's being conveyed is largely the same, but how they're told, the extra breathing room that's allowed, and then also like, you know, and then Snyder adds that the Icelandic sort of like singing while like Aquaman gets in the water. Such a different experience of that scene. He's brought in, like, he makes it, you're like, I actually all of a sudden, it's a world, like I got into that world of the Icelandic people in Aquaman in a way they did. But even the build-up to that scene is different. Remember, in the 2017 version, Batman literally shows up on the cliff, looks down. That's the first shot of it. In this version, there's these epic vistas of glaciers in Iceland, and he's going over by horse, and it's like, Batman has to get there. And so, you're cor absolutely correct when you point out, plot-wise, this film and the 2017 cut tell the same story. 
They just don't tell the same story in the same way. And those differences proves all the difference because you could you can think that the point of this kind of story is to get to the exposition, to get to the buildup, to try and get it on. But then you get a perfunctory nature to a superhero film, which should be actually wanting you to sit back and, and stare in awe at what these characters are doing and understand the gravity of the stakes at hand, the the immense amounts of sacrifice that they're doing, and just how difficult everything is. And you, the extra room allows you that. So even something as simple as Batman showing up to try and recruit Aquaman, by allowing 30 seconds of shots of him going over yeah. a glacier, it just is like, oh, Batman had to go way the hell out there to get him. Is this such a, like, does this then become like a an extraordinary example of the difference between right story and plot in the you know anders in the the how you teach film right like that you know that difference how you tell a story versus if you were to summarize in chronological order the events uh, yeah to some degree but i think it's also just shows the way that like uh you can take a script and direct it in a very different way like it, it actually helps so even the maybe- same even the same yeah. lines you're talking about. And there about. are certain line readings even in the film that they seem to have taken different uh, takes of. I've seen some clips online, uh, for instance, when Superman uh, comes back uh, initially and uh, Wonder Woman is, you know, delivers one of her lines, like calls out to him, Kal-El and stuff like the, the actual, they've actually seemed to have taken different takes and different line readings at times. Oh, um, interesting. The, interesting. So like direction is also, you know, it's about, choosing the line readings it's about choosing uh how that camera's going to set up a scene right like establishing shots like like aaron pointed out with batman coming to the village um it just really tells us how screenplays don't give us all the information that a movie but it's it's so funny in that kind of approach because on the one hand people would say hey i don't need to know how batman gets there or why you're just slowing down the plot right but at the same time, it actually clarifies things of being like, why didn't Batman show up by water? Why does he not have his bat? Where's the bat there? boat? You know, Where's it's just the bat like, boat? In actuality, by giving more time, it seems to answer the questions that all the like plausibles will complain about when seeing some of these movies. Of like, why are, I'm not getting like the answer of why this, that, and the other. And this movie actually gives you such <laughs> such a long runtime that you basically get True. everything. I don't think that that means that the long way is the only way to get across some of that information or do it like that you couldn't direct a version of the same screenplay in a different way that was shorter. But we, I think let's point out that the title of the movie on, on HBO and Crave is Zack Snyder's Justice League. Yeah. Like that's how it's being listed to distinguish it from the 2017 film. And so to a great degree, what, we're watching it for is to see um Zack Snyder's direction. I I thought that was a lovely touch given, you know, some of the discussion about the state of cinema. I'm thinking in particular of Martin Scorsese. He had a recent piece in Harper's about Fellini and he was talking about how, you know, the late Fellini films became Fellini's, you know, satiricon, etc. And he was seeing like, you know, in earlier pieces he's talking about how a landscape dominated by superhero films is lacking this auteur aspect. And then we get Zack Snyder's Justice League. And I, we don't have to get so much into the Scorsese, but you know, how is this Zack Snyder's Justice League? Not 
not just Justice League, but Zack Snyder's Justice League. So Aaron, my initial question to you would be, do does this um, extra breathing space or these, you know, these extended leads into scenes, some of the extended leads out of scenes, is this, um, you know, an aspect of Snyder's approach to film or are there other aspects you want to you want so it is and it (laughs) short answer yes but it's basically the fact that the form and the structure lean into his thematic obsessions which are in power in scale and in you know the mythic nature of superheroes and people like to denigrate the idea that he's dealing with them as myths and they think they're like oh you know it's, it's really stupid when Zack Snyder talks about Batman and Superman being like Zeus or Poseidon from the past because, you know, it's a completely different relationship. It's not like people in the past just only engaged with these stories all over and over and over. And I'm like, well, first of all, you're misunderstanding antiquity. They absolutely did understand absolutely everything about their life and all the meaning in it through the stories, specifically one story, the Iliad. <laughs> but beyond that, it's misunderstanding the fact that the appeal of superheroes for a person like Zack Snyder, not for all people, but for a person like him, is the unknowable power of superheroes. And you are not able to convey that if you tell a story in a visual way about beings that are stronger than you, have more of a burden than you, and are experiencing the world in a way you can never understand in a way that would be like a normal character. In a- so you're trying to... You're trying no, to- so I'm saying that he, with his filmmaking, he stretches things out. By stretching it out, whether it's in slow motion in a scene or allowing a lot of padding at the beginning and the end of the scene, he allows you to look at it in a different way. His visual style is hugely built off of tableau. He's inspired by paintings. He's inspired by sculpture. He wants you to witness the body and the meaning of these figures in the positions that they are. So the actual visual approach and the glacial pl- pacing, you know, quote-unquote, is actually really key to the way that he films the action, the way that he frames them. It's all tied in there together to try and actually produce awe in the people watching the film. Whether, whether it's successful for you, is a, it's a completely fair question, but that's his actual approach. He's attempting to get you to bow down in awe to these figures. I, I would agree to that. To some point, I think that actually sometimes, if I can go back, maybe we'll talk about some of his his earlier superhero films in relation to uh, Justice League in a minute. But that clarifies also for me a scene one of the one of the best scenes in Man of Steel, which is when young Clark uh, starts experiencing his powers at school, and it, he finds them over, absolutely overwhelming. It's like because I think you point out something that. Snyder really is suited to the DC characters in a way that he couldn't be to the Marvel characters because the Marvel characters, as much I, I love, I love a lot of them. Spider Man probably my favorite because Spider Man is like a teenager who who gets superpowers, right? But Superman in this scene, he's also a kid who's now suddenly experiencing these unknown powers. But instead of finding them exhilarating, instead of finding them freeing in some way. And yes, of course, Spider-Man faces a, a moral uh, responsibility from his powers. But Superman, in at least in Snyder's telling, is literally uh, like paralyzed by his powers. They actually render his existence unbearable. And so that's part of the mythicness. He wants to suggest that superpowers actually wouldn't simply be uh, yeah. you know, all fun and games. 
And I think this is why his extended cut games by definition. Right. And I think this is why um, I think in this film, the character who then becomes one of the emotional cores of the film is Cyborg. Absolutely. Right. Because Cyborg, Victor Stone is the one who like it, this has been like thrust upon him. But like, so just to, to tie some of these things together, I think you're both describing a difference in, um, in direction between the characters and the audience in, in how Snyder approaches things versus how some other superhero films do maybe trending uh, towards Marvel. Like, right. Like Snyder is, is essentially saying that if you're a superhero, you're not like regular people. And he's trying to convey that difference. What, what, what would it be like to have those extraordinary powers? Um, and what other sort of like feelings or what other, you know, troubles they'll be experiencing due to those powers. Whereas often the Marvel trend is to say, these are regular people who've been thrust into superpowers. And so they're experiencing, right? Peter Parker's experiencing what a teenager experiences, but with superpowers. Um, I feel like the Marvel direction is working in like in, in a different direction. It's not trying to bring, right? Like the Snyder for me really embodies that what I've always thought was the difference between DC and Marvel, right? Like the heroes as gods versus heroes as people who have been thrust into special powers. And I feel like in some ways the difference between these cuts is on some level the difference between some of the basic dynamics between DC and Marvel. Like I actually do think that Whedon captures aspects of the Marvel world really well. Like the you know the ban- the banter between people but like the the fact that these are like humans you can connect with undergoing this crazy experience of the end of the world or like aliens coming even though they have great powers. Yeah. Whereas Snyder's trying to say like what would it be like to be this alien immensely powerful force that's arrived on earth. Yeah, I mean he actually frames the human experiences of some of these characters through mm-hmm. the people in their vicinity. That's why he focuses on Lois Lane and mm. on Martha Kent. As grounding to understanding right? Superman as a human. So like Anders, I don't want to I'm I'm not yes. trying to overstate that like Snyder's only interested in this one way, but it is some of the transition of if you just take us a, a chronology of Man of Steel to Batman versus Superman to this film he is building a vision throughout the the actual like narrative of Superman's experiences from scared child alien to God. We're understanding what he's like as a man and the struggles and the personal fears that he experiences. But the actual visual language he's using to depict him on screen is constantly shifting into extremely religious symbolism, which is why in this film... You get so many moments with him and some of the other characters that are just trading on pure religious iconography. Anton, you already mentioned the moment where the Icelandic women sing a kind of religious hymn to Aquaman as he goes into the sea. Yep, yep. And because he, yeah. he, he's the one who brings them good things, right, to help sustain the community. That is, they, and the sweater. Yeah. But he gives them the sweater and they venerate it. They venerate, they hold it when they're singing. When Superman finally comes back and he goes above the sun to, like, suck up the rays and he's totally in a cross formation before he comes down. You even get that with even some of the way that he plays with slow motion and flashes scenes almost seem to be depictions of old paintings of, like, angels where the way he freezes into almost like a wall fresco. Absolutely. And the lighting in the clouds and the lightning and stuff like that. 
But I guess what I'm trying to sort of maybe defend Snyder from the accusations here is that I think when we say, well, he's interested in superheroes as like godlike beings and Marvel is interested in superheroes as regular people. And and we talk about power being a theme of, of his films. It's very easy for people to say, well, he's, he's interested in a power trip. He's interested in this sort of borderline Nietzschean notion of the Superman or Ubermensch, which is, I think, an artificially shoehorned in philosophical concept. But Actually, he wants us to to see them in that way, but also to potentially sympathize with them or empathize with them and say, hey, you know what? Maybe you don't want to be Batman or Superman. But, but it's it's forging the connection with the alien, right? Like, yeah. Like, to me, he emphasizes the aspect that, that Superman is an alien, right? Like, someone from a different world. But... But how do you, like, connect with it? How would people approach it? Whether the close people, right? Like, his adoptive parents, and that relationship is so strong and central in Snyder's works. The way that, um, in a way that you know, like, Martha's, um, the way that Martha, that, you know, uh, Kevin Cost, the way that Kevin Costner plays the, fa- you know, the, fa- the adoptive Jonathan father. Kent. Yeah, Jonathan Kent. Yeah, um, so it's, it's, he emphasizes the otherness, so it's emphasizing within... Not just aliens, but Atlanteans, Amazonians, people who don't belong in the world. Even Batman is a super rich person. They, they are not normal people. But he's also not saying that those are necessarily desirable qualities. To be separated, to be other, might carry with it uh, pain or suffering. And I think there's definitely, right? Like there's, um, there's a cost to a lot of their powers. I think this is Matt Solar Seitz was talking about how he thinks that one of the main themes is power has consequences. Right, like, like in the Marvel sense, to distinguish, right, there's often that the famous Spider-Man line, right, like, with great power comes great responsibility. It's not that you shouldn't be responsible with your power in the, in, you know, the Snyder world, which I think is important, right? Like, it's not like a will to power, assert yourself over everyone. But there's also this sense that when you have these great powers, you actually, you know, in his Superman can do ama- such amazing things. And he really emphasizes that visually, right, the way he can rise up and, like, the way he can blast his laser beams out of his eyes, the way the Snyder does it conveys so much strength and power. But at the same time, there's always like consequences that are beyond their control. And that gets into some of the larger issues of the whole Snyderverse, where it's like that people have always like, and I think Snyder's actually responded to, like the way that Superman, you know, fighting the Kryptonians lays waste to Metropolis. And that's not his intention. And it, it, He's unleashing his awesome powers, and this this catastrophic destruction is unleashed. And then, I, these, each of these films is, in some sense, responding to you've done a powerful thing, but it unleashes consequences. You and can't Batman then, to. and even in so, then Batman responds in kind. The next film and says, yeah. um, you know what? We can't allow somebody to do that ever again. So I'm going to take it upon yeah. myself to do it. And then it has unintended consequences. Which He'll like- exert it over in order to prevent it. And then we get with even the Superman, um, his, his resurrection in this film, we get the whole, that great scene of like, you know, is Superman gone bad? Cause it's like, like you thought you had a plan, but you can't actually control like the, the rollout of consequences. It's almost, so however much of a silly, 
um, plot construction, the pa- the mother boxes are, they're actually kind of a neat little metaphor of the idea of like untapped power in, a, in like a physical form, kind of what these characters all have internally, which is the idea that it can you can create such great things of it, but you can create such descru- destruction too. It can bring Victor Stone back to life and make him a cyborg, but it can also lay waste to an entire world. And so all these individuals are struggling with their own strength, with the strength of adversaries, and attempting to use their kind of moral courage and depending on each other's moral courage to kind of overcome the chaos that is possible out of these, you know, these great feats of strength, which is in a lot of his other movies, too. He's constantly trying to get at the sacrifices of heroism, the moral cost of it. But then beyond that, the absolute need for sacrifice to assert order onto a chaotic system. I like, Aaron, that you bring up chaos, order. I've talked about you know, those two themes in Snyder's work already in my review of Dawn of the Dead for the retrospective. I think it's interesting that the objects that are being sought are the mother boxes, right? In, in classical mythology, in his sort of vision of the universe, we often get, right, father is order, heaven, mother, earth, chaos. And we have to keep in mind, right, order isn't good and chaos is bad. Order can be improperly imposed, or it can be a good thing. Chaos is both dangerous because of all of it, its potentiality, but but right there's the the necessity of that possibility and all the things, all the futures it can open up. What I find interesting about the film is that you're pursuing these mother boxes, and what we have is a dark side, the wrong imposition of order, trying to get hold of the potentiality, right, the chaos. All the power bound up in these boxes to unleash what he wants to impose on the universe, and specifically on Earth. Or we get good order in the form of the Justice League heroes who are trying to get in there first. I'm just sort of intrigued by the way Snyder sort of engages with these mythic dimensions. And it seems to me like I, you know, I'm always curious, like I don't, I don't know how like self-consciously he's doing this but he's doing this in a i think a very deep way but don't you think we've also sort of troubled that idea a little bit in terms of because he also shows like superman's order and stuff is not like purely like good so even but even the right even superman as someone who's trying to um create order let's say even within his futures it's not all right it's not always a right order but I think and this he, is something to, what that clashes a little bit with what a lot of people like historically have expected from like Superman comics. And I think ironically, I mean, one of the complaints I, I sometimes find people's like complaints about Superman and things to be slightly contradictory at times, because on the one hand, they're like, he's boring because he's too powerful. And then on the other hand, they get upset when someone actually uh, deals with the consequences of that power being potentially not boring right because obviously if you have the ability to level cities with your like strength and vision you're not that's not boring per se um and it's maybe just a lack of imagination right so like because i also think there's that imaginative aspect of snyder people have talked a lot about this movie as being like someone playing with their action figures and like smashing them together and i'm like well that's a bit that's a bit reductive i think that um there is a playfulness that no, even us, we've been talking about deep themes of chaos and order and uh, you know, the, the burden of power and and things like that. But I, I, did you find any, I found, I think there's a bit of a playfulness in this movie more so at least than Batman versus Superman, which is the darker 
vision for sure. Uh, I think this film it enjoys like it the same way, but it's you know it's the there's the reason that he he draws on like you know he talks about great art like Caravaggio and stuff like that, but there's also a touch of like Boris Vallejo or like the heavy metal like imagery of like the 1970s and stuff like that. It's like that kind of yeah you know there's a reason yeah. his Aquaman is like a yeah like dude with like long hair who's gonna like rock out and it's it's kind of an in one sense an antiquated sort of fun in a way but it's like that like 1970s 80s metal kind of like fun yeah i think i might have buried the lead way earlier but it's a good comment into metal because what is one thing that metal is metal is extremely sincere there's absolutely no irony in it, and there's no irony in Zack Snyder movies. Just none. <laughs> the, the, you know, the smarmy character is Lex Luthor in Batman Superman, and he hates him because he's a villain. And right. so, like, that kind of whole ironic approach to these gods on Earth, he's like, nope, have no interest in it. And that clarifies something that I preferred about Snyder's version of Justice League to the, the 2017 cut, is that, like, I really actually disliked... Uh, the Flash, Ezra Miller's Flash in the 2017 film. I found him irritating, grating. Um, and yet somehow here, Flash is more interesting to me. Even his delivery of some of his jokes is better. Like he's still a funny character, but he's earnest. He's kind of like, you know, this like character. He's like, you know, really wants to like help his dad who's in like prison live up to him, you know, and like our introductory scene to him where he's like going to go work with puppies in a like pet store. And, ah, I I don't know. And he has a bit of distance from each of the, like the other heroes, right? right? Like he's, he's more in the the position of the fans in -hmm. some sense. And, and he, you know, he's always sort of like impressed or in awe or like wanting to hang out with all these cool heroes. So he's he's a nice anchor in terms of this, you know, if we've talked about maybe the possible problem of having godlike heroes, and being interested in them. Flash, I think, in this fleshed out version becomes a nice anchor for the audience. Um, particularly from sort of a uh, point of humor, but also, you know, his story. And then I think one of the emotional anchors, as you said, Anders, that, you know, Ray Fisher, the his cyborg, goes from being a character who I was like, I think I leaned over to Aaron in the, the Whedon version, I was like, who is this? And like, what, like, what's going on with him? Why is he like a cyborg? It didn't make any sense to me. He was just sort of like, why is he even in this movie? Because he hasn't been introduced, but we don't learn anything about him. And in this one, he's like practically, like, I don't know if he has the the full screen time, but like he's practically the emotional anchor of this film that holds mm-hmm. it together. And I think he he provides more than anyone else the emotional anchor for the audience. Absolutely. Because he's, he has this very like, um, you know, personal engagement with his father and with, and with, these larger issues of what does power do like it right because his father's done this to him yeah i i do have to mention as i did to you when we were watching the movie how much uh i loved the casting of uh joe morton terminator 2's uh creator of skynet as (laughs) silas stone it's 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 a a nice nice little intertextual reference (laughs) yeah absolutely so yeah i think it's really interesting how snyder even though Justice League was initially pitched as the culmination of the DCU, it really has become now a culmination of a Superman trilogy by Snyder, wherein he introduces Superman in Man of Steel, builds him up as the character, shows the universe-altering ramifications of him being there. Batman Superman deals with the fallout of that, but actually switches to the human perspective through Batman, 
to view him. And now in Justice League, you actually have Cyborg, who is the kind of meshing between man and, and God. He's the, the person stuck between two worlds, and he's really your your um, point of view character to experience this. Even if he yeah. doesn't, you know, yeah. it'd be hard. I would have to go and count, like, who really has the most screen time on this. I feel like it probably still is Batman, but it's hard to say. And it, I, you can tell because Cyborg gets that emotional arc that threads the needle between the two things. And so I find it really interesting how Snyder is is drawing out themes that he does in some of the previous films in Cyborg. Even the his his moral need to help people when there's that whole visual sequence of him interacting with the computer mm-hmm. and he like visualizes it as him kind of walking around into these worlds and watching and people on like, screens. Mm-hmm. And there's that whole almost little short film you get about the woman, um, Linda yeah. Reed, and her whole like struggle to pay the rent and like she gets evicted and she can't and he just just through his powers, he's like benevolently realizes that he can make her life good again. And so but that's something that Superman has. That's something that all these heroes have. But he's discovering that moral capacity of using his power for good. And it's fiddling into the themes of these three movies, which really is reckoning with the amazing power that exists in the universe and controlling it. But then also allowing the human dimensions, the emotion mm. to to be the stopgap against the awesome power. Yeah, and I would say that the Justice League, that seems to be one of the things about Justice League. And if, if Man of Steel introduces Superman's phenomenal powers that lay waste to a city in his battle with the Kryptonians, and Batman versus Superman, Superman starts off with that, right? Like the impact of that on the world of humanity, the way that Batman's provoked to try to deal with this new threat of Superman, you know, seeing uh, Metropolis be destroyed. There is an aspect of Justice League where it's about how, on some level, like, personalizing, or it's not necessarily the right word, but, like, there's something about honing and focusing on the personal dimension does bring some sort of balance to the powers, and I think it's there with Cyborg, the way, right, like, Cyborg has these phenomenal abilities, right, and he's, you know, with his connection to sort of networks. control the world through the internet, yeah. He can work things financially. But he only he right he pays out this this woman in need. He's not like reworking sort of a financial system. But then you also get um, the way that like Superman is grounded by his connection to Lois, and they talk about this that you're like like he probably would have gone berserk and like destroyed everyone without that like personal connection to Lois. Which is what the nightmare sequences yeah. are actually threatening. That if, <laughs> it's a that world if, without that Lois. If that's as removed, the ground right? Like Lois dies, then, if yeah, it's removed. So can we, we've gone really deep into some of the themes of these movies. Can we just kind of take this last bit here and step back and just talk about some of the more obvious stuff that we kind of glanced over? Things like the fact that it's in 4-3 aspect ratio, that it's four hours long, <laughs> that there's multiple pro uh, epilogue scenes that are just absolutely ridiculous teasing <laughs> more stuff to happen that might not ever get filmed. And, and just on a peer level, I think that even, we haven't really discussed the villains at all, even... You know, Steppenwolf is not the most interesting villain, but I did find it kind of interesting how he even throws a mythic thing into him as this kind of middle manager of hell that he's stuck in this cycle. Yeah. Of he has to conquer worlds yeah. and he's doomed himself. I really disliked uh, Steppenwolf the first time I watched Justice League. I was like, why is this guy the villain of like the big villain in your like superhero movie? But by bringing Darkseid in, even in the background, kind of. It really his makes threat, his right? Role, his ominous yeah. threat. But also, it clarifies Steppenwolf's relationship to the rest of the plot in a better yeah. way. Yeah, 
it's one of these weird situations where like less or more is less or more is uh, more, more simpler. In some way. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Darkseid has a lot of presence in this film, even though he's in only in it in snippets. Right. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, right. Like his ominous threat might be what, what is more like narratively powerful. Well, I mean, we'll see if they, if they, you know, if they make a sequel or not and develop it. Um, I guess I'm, I'm going to make two points before we like, you guys can ground things in some of the technical. I do want to, while we're talking about the trilogy, I do want to mention two things. Um, mm-hmm. It ties into some of the things you mentioned. Like, on the mythic dimension, I'm I'm fascinated by reading this as kind of a trilogy, that we get Man of Steel, Batman vs. Superman, Justice League, focused around Superman, and I'm interested in how there is kind of like a, a Christological like um, pattern to them, in the sense of, Man of Steel is about the arrival, um, so we get it's kind of like this incarnation um, or birth of Jesus story. Batman versus Superman is the passion, crucifixion, death narrative of Superman, and then this film is the resurrection narrative and his ascension. And we even get that scene, Aaron. You've already mentioned it, where he, Superman, at right after after he comes back, he ascends up into the early atmosphere up above the Earth. And it's the sort of shot where you're like, if he was holding um, one of those sort of cross with like a flag, it would look like one of these like resurrection um, images out of the Middle Ages. So there's there's this mythic dimension. Then on a on sort of a narrative level, I'm intrigued by like understanding Justice League as being kind of the third part. And you've talked about all these epilogues that are tagged on, and I was like, this re- movie reminds me of Return of the King, which has. Yeah. All these extra th- scenes tagged on, and they're justified when you understand it as the culmination of 12 hours of film rather than the end of a More long movie. Yeah. 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 But that's also part of why, like, the four-hour runtime is quite long. It's, it's, if, if this was released in theaters, it would be one of the longest movies ever released. Right. Actually, it would be like- tied. The interesting thing is he kept it at four hours, two minutes, because that puts it in a tie with Brana's Hamlet and... Cleopatra with uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Those are the two longest films. They're both four hours, two minutes. He holds it there. That's ridiculous. Interesting. That's obvious then. He didn't yeah. want to exceed it for whatever. He could have thrown in like what one more minute of Joker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> but the, uh, I think also like, it's no point talking about whether this could ever have been shown in theaters or not. Cause that's a big point. Yep. Uh, you know, even Jackson got his extended editions on DVD back in the day with Lord of the Rings but the um the the very fact that if you find the movie long there's literally chapters you can just like watch one chapter per evening and watch it over a week like how how did each of you view the film did you one sitting or not I watched it over two nights yeah well yeah I watched it with Anders <laughs> yeah well the first we watched the first our first up to chapter four uh, and we separately finished off um, and two viewings actually work quite well. I mean, we have to remember the long epics always had the intermission. Yeah, it's it. It can be a thing. I watched Aaron, it in one sitting. You did one go. <laughs> yeah. Was it like <laughs> starting early? I started March at six 18th? o'clock and finished at ten, okay. like right after I finished supper. And it's such a I don't know. Like everybody has different approaches to length and enter and like pure entertainment things. And I don't really like focusing too much on these subjective things just because, mm. you know, I've seen thousands of movies. Some other people might see only a couple movies every year in theaters. And so we have a completely different tolerance. <laughs> it's like a poison. I have a higher tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, you're so already it, incorporating the Snyder uh, tragedy into your viewing of films. No, but it's 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 just the fact that I found it really entertaining. I thought that it moved a lot more similar to the Lord of the Rings or old 1950s epics, yeah. as opposed to some of these bloated movies that when some of these critics are talking about, oh, the film's just gargantuan running length. It's like, yeah, but it's it's not boring ever, and it's actually well structured. No, and I- and I'm also of the war. opinion that a movie isn't, if a movie's not 90 to 100 minutes, it might as well earn its length. And this one I think does. Yeah, if I can't, if I can't go to bed early, if I can't go to bed early. Oh yeah, I'm all about the tight well. 90. Get all I can get for the it. Worst, the worst is a two hour and 25 minute movie. That's just. Oh yeah. Weird. That's unjustified. Yeah, yeah. No, so watching the four hour and being like, no, this actually, just on a purely like subjective sense i enjoy Zack snyder's slow motion i enjoy the fact that he's he's a visual stylist and he his action scenes are actually exciting and well choreographed in ways that most superhero movies aren't i like the fact that i can just sit back and watch really epic stuff happen on screen and because in you know in some respects my appreciation of superheroes is me being a very basic person i want to approach them on a basic level sometimes and just mm-hmm. like it, i want to feel like a kid watching superhero movies and these films actually accomplish that in making me think of how cool they are. And do you think? Do you think that the? Do you guys think that the four-three aspect ratio complements, enhances, detracts from all this? I'd like to see it in theaters to know. Yeah. Probably IMAX. Like, see. So to see it on the IMAX with with that the proper four-three ratio because yeah. the yeah. entire movie is an IMAX projection ratio of like floor to ceiling IMAX a proper one and what I kind of like about Snyder asserting his authorial vision here is basically saying that I'm not even going to allow a letterboxed home video version to exist it's literally only going to be the version that you would see in theaters (laughs) and so you know maybe one day we'll get Justice, Zack Snyder's Justice League and IMAX maybe later this year they'll you know they'll release it in the IMAX I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be shocked if they do I would absolutely love to see it because it's definitely think, gotten good reviews and the actually. size of the imagery would be <laughs> genuinely spectacular on the big screen I will say I think he incorporates a lot of um, like the, the the vertical dimension actually is quite involved right like we often talk about epic filmmaking as being a horizontal thing right like things scaled out if you think about to like Ben-Hur and things like that um compressing things down i know he's playing for the imax but there it, it actually works also well with the compositions he puts in because snyder's often working in verticals so with all this talk about um the aspect ratio the runtime i think it, i think i want to open these issues up a little bit larger to cap things off so in the current of our podcasts we like to open up the discussion to larger issues in cinema and i think justice league taps into a lot of important things going on in, in the movie world from the changing nature of distribution to the content effect altering the relations between mediums of TV and film and how we distinguish them to the superhero reign that still holds sway over mainstream cinema and pop culture. In his recent review, Matt Solar Seitz talks about the film as embodying some important qualities related to conversations we've been having on the podcast. Seitz thinks the film, uh, Justice League, offers something of a corrective with his auteur approach to cinema to the problems that Scorsese has been infamously complaining about in recent years. In his Harper's piece, I think it was a New York Times opinion piece. Do you have any thoughts about how Snyder might fit into this larger discussion about the state of film? 
I know that it's probably counter to being on a podcast and discussing things about the discourse, but I actually kind of hate that everybody wants to reference Martin Scorsese in talks of this. Here's the thing. Martin Scorsese is an old man. He wants to watch his Fellini movies, and he is he's asking for a broader cinema culture that is not just homogenous about superheroes. So it's not whether he likes any in one individual superhero movie or not. Yeah. I'm sure he yeah. thinks some of them are fun. If he actually yeah, well, he even them says that, kids. right? He even says... <laughs> He even says that he thinks that there's, you know, art, artistic and aesthetic merit to a lot of these filmmakers. Yeah, it's just the fact that it's the only offering that if, when movie yeah. theaters were open, you'd have eight of nine screens all showing superhero movies. So here's the thing. If we're going to only have superhero movies going forward, I want them to look like Zack Snyder's Justice League because I find them more interesting. And the fact that they're unique visions that not everybody agrees with allows a more interesting conversation. The fact that they have a distinct style that is specifically suited to the cinema and depicting superhero feats makes them more interesting. And and just frankly, the fact that it doesn't seem that it's um, like audience tested to death, that there's taking risks yeah. here. And the fact that even though this is, people have been kind of rehabilitating Zack Snyder with this film. Mm. Um, and partially, I think, because of some of the features about him painted such a portrait of a sympathetic guy in, like, in real life. And you start to understand, oh, this is actually a person who just has a sincere vision for filmmaking and he's not doing any of this in a cynical way. Allows you to appreciate some of the decisions that he makes, even if you, you know, they might not be your personal cup of tea. And so I'm, mm -hmm. just, I'm just for, if we're going to have big, big, big cinema as product, as much personality as we can get into it, I want that. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think... I don't know that this offers any kind of real corrective per se. If anything, it when I the more I think about it, I'm like, here I am, I'm just spending more hours watching superhero movies and thinking about it. But I but I enjoyed it. I, I liked Zack Snyder's superhero movies for the most part. Um, you know, and I feel like, you know, I've championed some of his movies when other people didn't. And so, um, there's also a part of me who's like, Well, yeah, you know, I, I'm glad to see this exist, even if like, I don't really ultimately care too much what other people think about it. <laughs> no, it's true. But it's also how the, warm like, the... Are, how so, warm or, like, hot are you guys on this movie? No, I really liked it. I want to watch it again, and I want to watch it in theaters, because yeah. Yeah. I his movies, I the more I re-engage with them, the more I find things to like yeah. or, like, through lines. So I feel like if I revisit it in the future, especially after doing this retrospective that we're working on, yeah. we're going to find more things that are like, oh, that's that's interesting in light of his work as a whole. Yeah. I've generally liked every, the Snyder movies more each time I watch them. I've, you know, Dawn of the Dead has grown on me over time. Uh, I liked, you know, Watchmen more on a second viewing. I've only seen it twice. I liked uh, Batman vs Superman over four viewings went from like, uh, you know, a thumb, strong thumbs up to like, I really like it a lot. This one, I like it a lot. Not quite as much as Batman vs Superman, but I could see that changing on multiple views again because there's so much to take in. I honestly, I like, it's so there's so much that there's moments where I'm like I need to go back and, and think about that and watch that and think about how I feel about it. So yeah, I like it a lot. But I will uh, say I don't know I don't know anyone who likes Batman vs Superman as much as you and Aaron. But <laughs> there's a couple of us. No, there's. I'm not, I'm not saying I dislike it. To be clear, right? I'm not saying I dislike it. I'm no, actually no. I've also grown towards it, but. Uh, yeah. I feel like you guys are BVS boosters. Yeah, but as, the, as I as, you know, to quote Tobias Finke, there are dozens of us. <laughs> <laughs> so what about you, Anton? Like, how do you think towards Snyder I'm, films? I'm surprisingly, like, I would, it's interesting. Like, I feel like um, 
two thirds of the way through when I when I stopped for intermission, I was like, you know, like I was really liking it, but I was sort of curious how it end. And like once I saw the whole thing, I was like, you know what? Like this is extremely satisfying superhero filmmaking for me, and I'm like, this is actually giving me the um, cosmic level superhero movie that works for me. It builds well into I I like probably I probably like Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman even more because of how Justice League deals with a lot of the things in them. And so for me, um, I want to rewatch it again after watching Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman again. But I'm an enthusiastic you know um, yes to this film. I'm glad it exists, but I'm also I also think it's is doing something really good with the superhero storytelling. And for me, it's the kind of like, this might be the closest I get to a Kingdom Come adaptation. The way he, his chapters work, the way he titles them, to me, it, like this works like those grand scope graphic novels. I also think that like, I'm just happy that like to have kind of an event movie this year in the spring. Yes. Right? Like, and, I, and also kind of fits that a lot of Snyder's like movies have come out around this time of year, actually. Like, mm-hmm. like I think at 300 was a March release. Um, Batman vs Superman came out, you know, around Easter. Dawn of the Dead was a, like an yeah, April springtime. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, it just feels right to have like a big, you know, event movie around. This he's time. he's the guy who made the spring blockbuster a thing. Like he's yeah yeah you're right. Like the 300, 300 was like spring. Oh, March can be a release date. We don't have to wait till May. So I don't want to I don't want to belabor this stuff much more. I think we've really dug into this film and we've tried to give an extremely um you know like theme and structure heavy look at this work. And part of the thing is that I think Zack Snyder doesn't get a fair shake because he makes popular films and makes mm-hmm. popular films of a kind that are divisive. And so people kind of want to just conform to either a pan or a praise where it's like he's amazing, everything's awesome about it. Or he's stupid and he doesn't know what he's doing. And even though he might be technically good, his movies are dumb. And even when people try and be like intellectual about in some of these reviews, they they still end up just going back to this kind of uncomplicated, well, I'm either for it or against. And I'm just so against, I'm <laughs> against that in terms yep. of film you discourse. You become the enemy. No. And so there's an interesting thing that happened with Snyder where it's like, you know, as a teenager first watching his movies, I just thought they were super cool because I was a teenager and I liked seeing like cool action in slow-mo. And then as I delve into more cinema history and art films and stuff, I realized that, you know, these are not the be all and end all of movies. Obviously this style, it's a very specific Mm -hmm. modern blockbuster style, but then I've kind of wrapped back around and been like, you know, if we're going to be getting this kind of entertainment, I want it to be cool. And I'm fine yeah. with being a little bit earnest. I'll, I will approach the movies with the same sincerity that Snyder makes them, which is like, no, sometimes you can just sit back and be like, yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, that does seem to be his approach, like interviews, like people try to like push him on like hidden, like philosophical or political meetings. But he often is like, no, it's just really cool. <laughs> Just gotta go faster than the speed of light, far beyond the speed of light. Gotta break the rule, Barry, and you gotta do it now. With all of our talk of Justice League, we're excited about the Zack Snyder retrospective we've launched on the website last week. We've posted the introduction to the retrospective, which outlines some formal and thematic concerns we're going to be exploring, and I've posted the first review on Dawn of the Dead. We hope you check in to see 
how we talk about 300 and explore the other films in Snyder's Canyon. We also hope that you can share, like, review the podcast and check in with what's going on on the website. We really appreciate all your support and hope you can share if you're enjoying the conversation. We're glad you're joining our dialogue and join us next time. Thanks. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell. <laughs>